Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Jason Cardone for a conversation about Italian Renaissance art. Dr. Cardone is an adjunct professor of art history at the American University of Rome, based in Italy. He is currently working on various translation projects for Maurizio De Luca, who was the past chief restorer of the Vatican Museum. And probably uh, I'll bring up some questions about, uh, about that project during the dialogue today. And Dr. Cardone joins us from Rome. Welcome to the show, Jason. Ciao. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Friday late afternoon in, in Italy? That's right, 4 p.m. It's uh, summertime now. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so we're chatting about uh, Italian Renaissance period, art in that uh, period. Let's start with a definitions question, Jason. How do you define what the Italian Renaissance was? Defining the Italian Renaissance, uh, well, like any 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 such uh, term it's it's it can be simple or complicated uh it's generalizations it depends on who you ask uh a great way a great resource for that uh is uh, the civilization of, of italy or rather the renaissance italy by uh, burkhardt which was published in 1860 and that really forms a lot of the popular ideas of of the Renaissance and Renaissance art and its its time and its reasons and so on. Um, and for him, it was a incredibly uh, vibrant and dangerous time, an enormous amount of conflict in Italy, uh, small and great powers warring over the peninsula, uh, the consolidation, the rise of the papacy and the, the Catholic Church and so on, and, and many other forces, political and economic forces. And uh, the Renaissance art uh, reflects all of those things. It reflects the, the rising idea of the individual, the individual as a, an entrepreneur, the individual as a um, powerful um, source of uh, initiative, uh, commercial or otherwise. If you think of, for example, a wealthy merchant, Instead of just uh, paying for a chapel dedicated to the glory of God, uh, he might commission a self-portrait dedicated to the glory of himself and to his family name. And when you contrast that with what we call the medieval era, which, again, can be defined in many different ways, one thing certainly is different is that a much greater focus on, on on the religious aspect and the centrality uh, of of God and so on. So that would have been unheard of uh, a century or two earlier that, that an individual would celebrate himself in in, in, in a way that wasn't uh, religious. So um, that's just a, a little tangent that I think describes some of it. It's a uh, the Renaissance period um, in Italy is is wonderful because it's still so present it's present um in the um consciousness of, of of the people uh in their 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 pride for for their history which is so visible you know there's the kind of an old an old 
adage is, you know, 50% of the world's world heritage sites are in Italy and the other 50% are everywhere else. Right. So Italy's, Italy's beauty regarding, you know, these various phases of, of art are, are easily accessible. You can walk into any, any number of churches in any number of towns and see wonderful examples. Um, so that's uh, another aspect of it that's important about Italy is that it's, it's beyond just walking, paying admission into a museum and, and you know, enjoying a, or, or, or scrutinizing a, an image. It's, uh, it, it, it can be in certain part places in Italy, a, a, a town that was designed in a rational, uh, idealistic way uh, by a local potentate who uh, was filled with these kind of humanistic ideas and, and translated them with his disposable income into a nice straight street where merchants could conduct their business in a wide open piazza uh, that would be then embellished with uh, statues celebrating not just the, 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 the again, the religious um, patrimony, but perhaps uh, ancient, ancient heroes that were ever present and uh, thanks to the presence of ancient Rome, ancient Rome being, an, again, another historical phase going back beyond the, the, the Middle Ages and that too being, as, as we all know, ever present in the uh, territory, visually and physically present to our own time throughout Italy and, and for that matter throughout the Mediterranean world, but, but probably nowhere as much as it is in Italy. So the Renaissance has an architectural component, a religious component, a commercial component. Um, th- those, are, those are some of the aspects of it that are, that are uh, easily definable that anybody can you know, uh, f- rifle through on, on the internet these days. Just go on a Google map visit of Florence uh, and that, that'd be, give you a good indication. Um, and if I might uh, mention one other great little anecdote for, for filmmakers or film, film lovers, film aficionados, uh, uh, Orson Welles, who, who is certainly in his own way a Renaissance man of our own time, uh, one of his great roles was as Harry Lyme in The Third Man, which is a, uh, you know, a dark kind of post-war mystery film. And he's literally threatening his old friend with death. And uh, he tells a little story. He says, uh, uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, in something like 25 years of war and famine and and all kinds of violence throughout Italy, they produced Leonardo, Michelangelo, and the Renaissance. 500 years of wonderful peace and quiet and order in Switzerland, what do they make? The cuckoo clock. What uh, period of time do you, as a scholar... Uh, define peg the Renaissance, Italian Renaissance to. Uh, for me, and I think generally, generally for for most people, they would say the the at least the mid fourteen hundreds, um, if not earlier, because to me, um, and I think this is not any, this is not a significant opinion on my part. Uh, the the great uh, scholars of what is considered the early Renaissance and and the early Renaissance. Uh, blossoming was the early 1400s in Florence. So this is a, a century before uh, Leonardo and Michelangelo. Um, Leon Battista Alberti, who's a particular focus of, of, of the things that I've studied, uh, is the quintessential Renaissance man uh, before Leonardo. He's just a little slightly lesser known, uh, but a master architect, mathematician, uh, artist, although in his case none of his none of his specifically artwork uh, survives. Although his 
book called On Painting, um, which was published in Latin and in Italian uh, in the around the 1430s, uh, defined for perhaps you could say all time uh, the Renaissance ideal of what a painting should be. And what his ideal was was a was a painting with a very good story that was animated, that was lively, that 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 celebrated beauty, that took most of its cues and um, essence from antiquity, meaning there was an absolute veneration for the sophistication uh, of uh, ancient art as it was understood uh, and had been transmitted also by the writings of the ancients, uh, and an enormous mathematical component, which is the geometry of the Renaissance, the rational ideas uh, that were incorporated into the paintings. And here can, I think, through contrast, help people understand, uh, I think, easily the difference between what we would consider Renaissance art by what it's not. And when you look at uh, the, what's considered Gothic and medieval art uh, and Byzantine art, for that matter, which would be the Eastern Greek and Russian style, if you think of the Russian icons that everybody's familiar with, that, that's a style that goes back to medieval Greece and the Greek Orthodox faith, which is, of course, you know, slightly the schism between the difference between that and, and Catholicism, where it's very frontal and iconic, our word icon, meaning that kind of very hieratic, spiritualized figures that aren't particularly realistic, a baby Jesus in the, in the Madonna's arms that could practically look in his eyes and have the wisdom of, a, of an elder. Um, whereas the Renaissance now, when we think of the Mona Lisa as an obvious example or any other, where there's a, a richness and a nuance to the, to the lighting, there's a, there's a study of, of depth there that simply wasn't uh, a priority. Uh, in, at, at earlier times, and it demonstrates that mathematical approach, the mathematical approach to creating architectural backgrounds, a mathematical approach to, to considering the, 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 the head of a figure from a, from a geometrical perspective before it's, it's a head, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's an oval sphere-like um, uh, shape and so on. So, so the Renaissance is, is when that scientific approach becomes more and more um, the focus of the art and its, its defining feature, as opposed to the earlier period when the real, a realistic style was not uh, the priority, um, the perspective constructions of the geometry was, was, was not there or it was extremely rudimentary, um, and the art was more purely spiritual. In the Renaissance, the spiritual aspect is now uh, expressed through that kind of mathematics sophistication, because of course that um, in-depth kind of study of mathematics was and was understood as a spirit having a spiritual quality. The idea of being able to capture infinity as a concept in the finite picture state uh, is a revolution of the Renaissance. We, we talk about perspective construction, which is what Alberti designed, which was. Um, further explored by Leonardo, who was without a doubt a, a, a student of Alberti, which was used as a tool for artistic expression in the paintings of Michelangelo and Raphael and the other, the great names of, of what we call the High Renaissance, which is now the 1500s, 
but they were using those mathematical, geometrical, and um, those kind of skills. They acquired them as part of their palette, you could say. It's, a, it's, it's another tool for their expressivity. And creating a, the idea of a landscape that has an infinite aspect to it with all of um, the, uh, the depth and creating a, an illusion of depth. The idea of a painting as a window and you're looking through that window into a moment of reality that's been captured uh, to the best of, of, a, of an artist's ability without the technical reproduction uh, that was developed, as you know, in the, in the 1800s and, and, and brought us photography and everything else. They were doing that without that technology. Um, they didn't have that technology yet, but all of the theory, all of that abstract um, geometry again was being applied through their palette brush through the design that is under the painting um, and that kind of sophistication that i that i hope I've, I've, I've made clear through this little discourse is at the heart of the italian restaurant renaissance I, I would say so were artists in these period in in this period who were really uh, innovating and applying um a certain mathematical approach to their their paintings. You mentioned geometry, for for instance. Were they leaning on um, breakthroughs that would have occurred by, let's say, other people in the period, uh, maybe mathematicians? And is there a bit of a fusion then that's happening? You know what I'm getting at. So it's it's sure. like it's like the artist can go only go so far if they don't know the math. So was there a bit of right? It was, so was there a bit of a fusion that was occurring in this period that helped, um, uh, ex like facilitate and uh, uh, accentuate what what ended up occurring? Yeah. Yes, that's is true. And also, there was simply an interdisciplinary approach. So when Alberti discusses in his book the qualities that a painter should have and what he should be schooled in. Uh, he lists like a real humanist that the artist should have a uh, a mastery of languages, of mythology, of geometry, and other skills as well. And so, and again, this is a century before, or approximately a century before, uh, you know, Michelangelo. So we're talking about the 1420s and 1430s. And then a great example is Piero della Francesca, who uh, is generally well known. Uh, Arezzo um, in uh, Tuscany, and uh, he was a floor, you know, he was under the Florentine um, sphere of influence. He came out of a family of merchants, and of course, the the merchant class. Uh, it was their uh, success that is a pillar of what permitted that environment to flourish, because there was the disposable income through trade and through industry, and um, the. Uh, the monetary innovations and so on, the Medici family, which everybody knows as the, uh, you know, the masters of Florence and the, spon the sponsor of Michelangelo and other artists. Uh, these were uh, wealthy merchants who, uh, but, but in the case specifically of, of, of Piero della Francesca, he not only wrote a, a, a highly um, uh, technical book on um, geometry uh, for art, uh, he also wrote a book on using the abacus because the abacus was the calculating um, computer, the calculator uh, for uh, economics. So this was a guy who came out of a a um, a family of, of merchants with those that kind of mathematical background, and he applied it 
um, fully to his art. Um, and uh, I think there's there's been I can't think of a specific author, but but many um, uh, scholars of Cezanne and stuff, uh, Cezanne who, who worked with those essential kind of geometrical forms for his art in in southern France in the late 1800s. He is he's his precursor is is often considered to be Piero della Francesca because the, there's that essential kind of geometry, like I was saying, bodies conceived of as geometrical shapes first and then taking on, you could say, a human form. Uh, there's a severity and a, and a mathematical cohesion um, to, to that work, uh, which, 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 of course, reflects that, that mathematical um, fascination. And then, specifically, uh, artists being friendly with um, mathematicians and other scholars. Remember that these... We always like when you see a film or something, or you see the museum. You know, I'm under the production. I'm under the protection of the Duke. I'm under the protection of of of, of such and such a uh, a cardinal or so. Uh, somebody like Caravaggio was under the, uh, the under the protection of a certain um, cardinal here in Rome. Those kind of relationships meant that these these wealthy individuals were were providing not just political product protection or physical protection providing a room or who or whatever they were they were the sponsors of these people and so a wealthy a wealthy individual like a medici or some of what are considered the renaissance popes popes who specifically had uh, an interest in supporting the arts and you know beyond their purview as religious figures uh, somebody like julius ii bellarovere or the borgia pope often considered infamous but that's debatable but that um uh, that's Alexander VI Borgia, 1492. He's he, he's pope, and these are popes who oft sometimes lived in luxury and sponsored scholars, poets, artists, scientists, and so on. Um, so those people were present, uh, and the environment in which and the circles in which these people often uh, circulated were were absolutely over overlapping and in, influential. So a very great artist, uh, Melozzo da Forlì, who's a little lesser known, who was a painter for um, Alexander VI Borgia, his work has that same kind of um, very uh, significant uh, geometrical kind of um, under underpinning. And um, it's known that he was friendly with the mathematicians of, of the court and, and of Rome, right? So, so the overlapping is absolutely there. Um, and, our, and, and when we use that term Renaissance man, where we say a person who has, you know, these, this wide variety of, of skills, um, you know, it's, it's definitely true. You, it's, it's, you, you could say these guys had a, a great deal of, of, of practice in a, in a wide variety of, 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 of the arts of that time. That would have been especially in the Renaissance, because before that, artists were much lower down on the social ladder. And uh, they were often considered mere artisans. And on one day, they're painting a religious icon that, which is today considered a masterwork. And on the next day, they're preparing penance for a parade or what do we call it? The trousseau, is that what it's called? Like, I think that, you know, the, sure. the, the, wedding, the wedding trunk of a, of, a, of a lady to be married, uh, decorating those. Verrocchio, who is uh, Leonardo's first master, he, Leonardo trained in his workshop. His workshop, they uh, did uh, everything. Um, Charles Nichols' book, his biography of Leonardo da Vinci, 
uh, he, he talks about that fact that uh, um, Verrocchio was kind of a, uh, I don't know how what equivalent we could say, an Ikea of his day. What do you need? I, what, whatever you want, I can do it. And it didn't matter if it was um, decorations for a party or, or, or a master work of a, a religious painting for veneration in a monastery. As as also he did as also he did with with uh, Leonardo's assistants um, and and so on. It's also interesting to remember that when you worked for a court, as Leonardo ultimately did for the Sforza um, in Milan, the Dukes of Milan, the Duke of, of Milan, um, his letter to the Duke, where he's kind of pitching himself, uh, and it's a famous document that you can find anywhere, I suppose, on the internet. Uh, he goes on about all of the various skills that he has that are have you know little or nothing to do with, with art, uh, because in his case specifically, having his uh, scientific uh, uh, background, he, he he proposed himself to make um, um, military engines, uh, catapults, uh, wall reinforcements, uh, um, deviate a river, uh, build a bridge. Um, uh, secret weapons, uh, anything that could be used uh, that might be of interest to a duke who needs to protect his his realm and um, occasionally fight uh, his foes or go out for conquest and, and, and whatnot. So Leonardo definitely encompassed that as well. So he's not just you know hanging around thinking lofty thoughts. Um, and you can also of course see uh, easily available the numerous numerous uh, <clears throat> drawings and sketches from Michael. Uh, excuse me, from Leonardo's countless um, notebooks that show the, that uh, examination of nature, that very in-depth examination of nature, which oftentimes is, is even um, dissecting bodies and so on, uh, musculature, as well as his invention of, of these strange machines, um, and uh, or not even strange, hypothetical machines, hypothetical flying machines, things like that. So... Um, that, that, again, is the idea of the Renaissance man who has all of those um, skills, often a, a, an acute uh, eye for observing nature, um, a insatiable uh, curiosity to know. Um, and uh, that, too, uh, Burkhardt, in his uh, uh, Civilization of the Renaissance, uh, mentions that this is this the, the, talking about the the, the the second half of the 19th century are he says this period so important the Renaissance because of, 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 of its fundamental uh, shaping of our own world um, and um, another really great uh, uh, source of contextualizing is Spengler's the decline of the West and which of course is not specifically about like some sad decline of the West it's more about how different um, civilizational periods have certain uh, characteristics that repeat themselves over millennia in various civilizations. So they all go through similar um, periods of, of, of maturity and, 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 and um, apogees and then decadence. But, but a wonderful way that he describes uh, that period, the Renaissance period, and, and the, 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 the many centuries that led to landing on the moon is the Faustian and, and who's Faust in, in Goethe's um, characterization, but a man who wants at all costs to know the idea of, of being open to everything. And uh, I suppose Galileo with his uh, uh, Galileo 1600. So this is, you know, this wouldn't really be considered specific with the Renaissance, but nonetheless, it comes out of that time 
um, that 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 thirst for knowledge takes him where it will, and it takes him ultimately against uh, uh, long-held beliefs about the order of the universe. Um, and uh, if I might mention just a little anecdote about that, here in Rome, in a chapel uh, who's uh, uh, at the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore, dedicated to the Virgin, there is a Virgin uh, with a moon um, crescent on her head like a crown, which of course is a symbol going back to uh, the goddesses of, of antiquity. Um, she's standing on a moon, and that moon that she's standing on is is covered with um, uh, craters and mountains because the artist was copying Galileo's uh, observations that had been published in his book on on the on on the moon and on 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 the heavens, where he had seen he was the first person to see those that texture that the moon had with, with through the human eye, thanks to the the, the lenses he was using. Um, it's a little uh, it's a little later. I've gone kind of past the late okay. the very late 1500s, leading into the 1600s. But the spirit is is that spirit that that quest for knowledge, that desire to know, in a period where uh, it was fashionable um, for wealthy people to sponsor those kinds of um, intellectuals and artists. So there was a flowering of it, in no small uh, amount due to that uh, sponsoring it. The civic pride, the civic pride of the city-states. The term humanism, it, it is, is that a, a term that can be used and applied to some of the uh, the way art was, was approached um, in some of your descriptions earlier, how it uh, evolved or changed uh, versus previous periods? Um, so can you, can you expand on that? And if not, um, uh, what is, if so, great. And please expand. If not, um, how do you define what humanism is in this context? Well, it, it humanism, I, I think in this specific case, it would be the focus on man as an ideal, right? As the, the human endeavor as an ideal, the human form as an ideal. Uh, so the focus is, is, is no longer, uh, specifically on God, although that dimension is always there because the re religion was a part and parcel of daily life. It was part of the fabric of daily life. Uh, so humanism would mean Michelangelo uh, examining carefully the human body um, and then translating that understanding of human anatomy uh, with his skill as an artist uh, bringing that realism, incorporating that realism, uh, that reality into his work. Not to say that his works are wholly realistic, because, because of course they're not. There's, we're always talking about questions of degree. Um, his last judgment in the Sistine Chapel, there's the hell that's shown that people are being cast into is a frightening place full of nasty goblins and things. Saints are shown flying around and all kinds of contorted positions, but that muscular kind of athletic ideal, which would have been a Greek and Roman ideal found in his time and still to be seen in the surviving statuary and mosaics and imagery uh, of, of ancient times, that ideal, you know, the ideal form for the man, a muscular athletic form like Apollo on the hunt, uh, a woman being the Venus, supple, um, very, very idealized symmetrical features and so on. 
um, so humanism would be celebrating the human dimension of, of, of as a characteristic. Then taking that uh, and making a Jesus look like a uh, in like Michelangelo's Last Judgment, his Christ, which is a powerful muscular figure, which is based on uh, a famous sculpture, uh, the Belvedere Apollo, which may or may not be the god Apollo because it's missing its, its head, but it's a powerful bust that can be seen in the Vatican Museums. And this Belvedere Apollo, um, a muscular figure full of force and, and potentiality, which Michelangelo copied and used it as the inspiration for the painting. And of course, him being primarily interested in sculpture, uh, of course, using a sculpture as a, as a model for his painting is, is, is not surprising at all. So humanism meaning celebrating human attributes, human ideals, whether they're physical or intellectual, and, and having that be an important dimension of, of, of the art. So Piero della Francesca um, painted m mostly um, religiously themed works. Uh, but those works have a rigorous geometrical space quite often, and his figures are often, they have an abstraction to them because they're, again, rigorously modeled on uh, mathematical uh, calculation, geometrical calculation, which is a human endeavor, but it's being used to celebrate for the glory of Christ because, because what are these gifts, these gifts that, 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 that we have uh, to perceive and elaborate reality and nature um, and to copy and, and, and beautify nature in the art, all of those things um, are by the grace of God. So uh, God never is far from the picture uh, in the Renaissance. I think that's fair, fair to say. Um, but it's, a, again, a question of, of degree. And, and so uh, with my, my students, um, again, it's, it's using that, those contrasts from between periods that helps clarify how to define those periods. So the fact that it's a more sophisticated art, it's more rigorous, it's, and, and this is true for the architecture as well, where there's clear uh, concepts of proportion uh, proportionality incorporated into the archways and the columns and all of those kind of things that create uh, the works of Brunelleschi, who, again, this is Alberti's time, the early 1400s, and, uh, and, and Brunelleschi is the author of the great Duomo, the dome of, of Santa Maria del Fiore that towers over Florence, and that towering would be the equivalent of our spatial. It towered over them and expressed achievement and ideal and uh, know-how and taking intellectual capacities and translating them through rational organization of resources uh, and an expansive exploratory approach to uh, architectural engineering questions and making them real. Um, and, 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 and that's the 1430s when, when that was completed. Again, you know, almost 100, not quite 100 years, but, but you know, a, a, a several generations before then. So humanism is the celebrate, great, so, celebration of, of human achievement through, through these, these disciplines. And that's a huge it's a discipline. I mean, all this stuff shows us the degree to which these people trained. Uh, and for example, um, Cennino Cennini, who's earlier, he's considered more coming out of the medieval era, and he in fact straddles the very late 1300s, the early 1400s, his book of art 
is the last great manual, which is simply a how-to manual, and practically every paragraph begins with a with a blessing from the the, 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 the virgin and and so on. Uh, but he uh, goes into the details of of, of the science of, of the recipes for producing all these things, the the, tech, the technical aspects that were fundamental. And one of the interesting things that he says is is it, is an artist should uh, be a um, apprentice and study under a master for 12 years, if not more, 12 years. So if you think of uh, going from your undergraduate to your graduate to your doctorate, um, it's not unlike that. But this would have been perhaps from 10 years old to 22. So when we see Raphael, a very young Raphael, already heading his own uh, workshop and uh, painting for the Pope in the Papal Apartments, um, it's not such a surprise when we see that anyone with a modicum of talent would be training from the time that they're a child, practically uh, still a child. So yeah, there's no such thing as being a teenager. Once you were, once you left your parents, you know, you were sweeping the floors and then you're grinding the colors and then you're, you're learning everything about the trade, uh, for, for years. Uh, and, and, uh, that's a big, big part of it. This amazing, the sophistication of this work comes out of, of the culture of study and apprenticeship and um economic um uh what's the word i want um prosperity which of course florence embodied that through their industry the wool industry the fabric industries the the, the money lending and so on that the, the medici were so good at some closing questions jason your favorite painter and why in this period well i certainly don't have just one but i would name two um, when you look at Leonardo's kind of floating magical figures with this amazing transition of shadows, the what they call chiaroscuro, literally from light to dark, where he uses that uh, darkening of these colors in such a delicate way that, that they practically seem to just be floating in space as they emerge from the shadow into the light. Um, there's something miraculous about that. Um, another artist that I love, who was a, a more of a journeyman, more of a more of a um, artisan than a, an artist like these more important innovators we talked about, is Pinturicchio. And Pinturicchio worked for um, again Alexander the Sixth Borgia and the Borgia Apartments. To this day, you can visit them in the Vatican. And I love the Borgia Apartments, where there is such a wealth of uh, symbolism where there's this very rich kind of mythological deciphering going on where quite likely the artist was, was collaborating with the court poets, the court intellectuals, and they were making these very complex kind of mythological stories that were then used to celebrate the glory of the Pope. And for example, you see uh, in what's called the Hall of the Saints, a magnificent uh, imperial arch and that imperial arch looks just like the one that you can see built by the emperor or for the emperor Constantine it stands right next to the Colosseum so it goes back to uh, a little after 300 AD and now there's one in the Borgia apartment painted and stuccoed onto the wall it's kind of partly three-dimensional and this one's got a big bull on top of it why is there a bull on top of that arch because the Pope's symbol the Borgia Pope's symbol was the bull so the first 
consider the first Christian emperor, Constantine, the Pope and his, the people he's paying to celebrate him portray the arch of Constantine, this glorious Roman past, now becoming the patrimony and a symbol of the glorious uh, Renaissance present. So there's a combination of the religion, the mythology, the glory of the imperial past, uh, celebrating a Pope in the apartments where he would receive his visitors and diplomats and so on. So it expresses the glory of the Pope. And how does the Pope ex express his glory? Through the skills of these artists, through the symbolism and the mythology, going back uh, two millennia. And, and that uh, summing up uh, also kind of definitely defines to some degree, I think, the spirit of, of the Renaissance. And that's 1492, Pinturicchio. Your favorite two sculptures, sculptures and why? Favorite two sculptures? Um, well, definitely, I mean, I mentioned the Belvedere Apollo and that's a, that's a great one because of the power of that ideal. And it's an inspiration to us all to, to, to keep working out and to stay in shape. That idea of, you know, sacrifice and, and uh, uh, struggle and get, get paying dividends through your, through having a, a, a ripped uh, body. He, that, the, the Belvedere torso definitely um, uh, embodies that. And um, something else, the uh, uh, Cellini, Benedetto's, uh, Benedetto Cellini, who was a, a Florentine jeweler and sculptor, his, uh, his uh, Medusa, and uh, what's the guy's name who killed the Medusa? Uh, now I'm, I'm having a, uh, uh, anyway, they, they, the, the, the killer, oh, I want to say it's me, Jason, because, because of the overlapping of all those, those myths. But anyway, I can't remember his, I, I'll, it'll, it'll okay. float up. He, he chopped the head off of Medusa and he holds it up in glorious triumph. And, and that is a, a cast a bronze statue, which uh, uh, celebrates again that, that mythological Greek and Roman past, but it was done for the Medici and to embellish uh, the uh, Piazza of the Signoria in the center of, of Florence. I'm sorry that I, you, that I had to, that I can't remember who killed the Medusa. Oh, it, it, it's okay. Someone oh, can- Perseus, of course, Perseus. Okay, you got it in there. You got it in there, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, that would have been bad if I couldn't remember before I said goodbye. You're you're on the fly right now. There's uh, you're not taking you know a moment or two to Google stuff. You're you're no, going no. you're, you're going yeah. with it. It floats up. That's that's the thing. Especially, I'd have to say some of that Renaissance ed education has seeped uh, over the generations into the Italian uh, educational system, which I had the privilege of doing all of my studies here, where it's old school and. You know, here's 10 books. I'm going to ask you one question from those 10 books, but you have no idea which. So you better know all those books really, really well. And that's that's the way. And that's it. That's your grade. No attendance, no nothing else. So it's a it's a it's a kind of a old fashioned way. I'm, I'm glad I, I got to. And, and, and of course, to this day now, I'm I'm on the other side. I, I work with my former professor and I. I, I'm an assistant for him in the Italian university. I, I, we didn't mention that I met the American, but those poor American students, they've got it tough because I'm stricter because I'm used to the Italian methods. The, um, what invention in this period um, do you believe was most important? Gutenberg, Google type. Well, well, wait, wait, yeah, for context. What, what invention was most important in this period of time that, that, uh, you believed helped accelerate or uh, progress art? Oh, well, um, 
if it's specifically yeah progressing art um i i'm i i can't i, I wouldn't say that there's there's a specific invention what there was was the refining of the techniques through the 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 use of like i said geometry and yes. stuff so yeah. so that was i ask it broadly i ask it broadly when i say that invention. wasn't a machine yes. Yes. that wasn't a machine but there's no question that where Alberti wrote those books in a period where his books being published, they were copied by, of course, the late 1400s when the movable movable type came along with Gutenberg. That meant that there was a much wider and progressive diffusion of of Alberti's ideas um, and, and, of course, everybody else. Uh, in the 1500s, Venice became the, the center of, of publishing so uh, there's no there's no question that um, techn techniques, technical um, issues, and, and so on were were more economically and easily and quickly um, spread because of print, the printing press. So the printing press was the internet. I mean, there, I think that's kind of an um, this, that's not a genius thing to say. <laughs> kind of a commonality, but there's there's no question that there's truth to it. Do you want to uh, close with? close with sharing um uh with everybody the translation projects that you're working on regarding uh Maurizio De Luca yeah yeah Maurizio De Luca was my professor because he he also taught at the university part-time but his his career and um his calling is art restoration and, and he had a 50-year career imagine that the year I was born was the year he began I was 1967 at the Vatican he's he's retired now these last 10 years uh, but he ended up being the head of, of the Vatican Museum Restoration Lab. Um, and just like I described, that understanding of geometry can really be a key to, to understanding the mind of the artist as we enter into the mechanisms that they use. Uh, art restoration and understanding the pictorial techniques is equally uh, brings you into a relationship with the artist that, 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 that regular aesthetics simply doesn't provide. As nice as you know, talking about you know how pretty a painting is, uh, Maestro De Luca's work and the book that I've translated for him that will be published next year by the Getty Foundation. It doesn't have a title yet, but it's his it's his experiences uh, restoring um, the uh, Michelangelo in the Pauline Chapel at the Vatican, the Raphael, some of the Raphael rooms, and, and other and Pinturicchio that I mentioned. Um, and he, he, he found things like um, through their meticulous kind of cleaning and, and, ex and understanding and examination of the various works of art, beans in some of the plaster where these guys are having a quick lunch of uh, and apparently a bowl, bowl of somebody's lunch fell into a bucket of the plaster that was used to paint the wall. And some of those beans end up in the plaster. Thumbprints, fingerprints found. Uh, you know, these could be Raphael himself. So there's that, there's that human aspect. Not to mention, um, and this is also something you can find, uh, the contracts and stuff, the struggles. Michelangelo having to uh, argue with the Pope's treasurers to get paid and things like that. So uh, there's a dimension to the art that we can understand through um, the work of, of someone like Maurizio De Luca, which too often I think gets overlooked. Um, so I'm really glad that I, I had the the opportunity to to collaborate with him on that translation and i think when that book comes out it'll be a an interesting book not certainly not only for specialists and uh, i'll just say very briefly that i'm currently 
uh, also uh, translating and subtitling his illustrated lectures. And those will be available to anybody on YouTube on uh, a channel that I've built for him, for Maurizio De Luca. So um, eventually when I have a link for that, I'll provide it to you. Please. Um, and those will be available. And in the same way, it's a, it's a fascinating aspect that's often more over the look of uh, the Renaissance world. And being able to work with somebody who had such an intimate um, uh, relationship with these artists uh, over the, through the centuries um, has been, it's, it's one of the advantages of staying here and being here, and I, I think. So I'm, I'm lucky about that. A few months ago, you invited me to attend a virtual visit that you hosted um, uh, regarding artwork at the Dalmatian School of St. George. Uh, was was uh, Maurizio, was he in attendance at that yeah, event? Yeah. Okay, I do remember him. Okay. Yeah, that uh, that is another big part of my work, which is which is creating virtual visits that are that are augmented with um, videos and films. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of using the technology for um, divulging the artwork, and you can definitely put the link to the Dalmatian School where you have works by Carpaccio and uh, another great scholar, Augusto Gentili, who wrote the defining book. Um, interpreting stories that are told there of, among others, St. George and the Dragon. Uh, the videos of him talking are on there, and then when you hear the, the, the simultaneous translation, you'll hear me. You can listen to me uh, translating those in, in these videos and so on. So there's a lot of wonderful stuff, and, um, and I, I, all, the more people who can you know, access it and enjoy it, the better. It's always enjoyable to connect with you, Jason. And thanks for coming on the show. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. Thanks for having me. So again, everybody, um, we chatted about a few different projects, especially at the end there that uh, Dr. Cardone is uh, continually working on. Um, in some cases, complete with the uh, past virtual visit. But I'll drop some links in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to some of these projects. Jason and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.